Welcome to the Magnificat Podcast. We are an international ministry to Catholic women. Throughout this series, we will pray together, share insights, and hear amazing testimonies, typically from women of faith who have been touched by the power of the Lord in their lives. This is a decidedly Catholic podcast, and in this series, you will hopefully learn more about the Catholic faith, God, the Blessed Mother, and much more. Thanks so much for joining us. Now let's listen to a great program. My name is James Sagers, and my friends call me Jim or Jimmy. And it's my pleasure to introduce this series to you, Understanding Catholicism. Well, it's so nice to be with you again. Today we have an exciting topic to cover, how God advances the covenants in order to prepare for the advent of Jesus Christ. So let us begin with the beautiful Jesus prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. O my divine Savior, transform me into yourself. May my hands be the hands of Jesus. May my tongue be the tongue of Jesus. Grant that every faculty of my body may serve only to glorify you. Above all, transform my soul and all its powers, that my memory, my will, and my affections may be the memory, the will, and the affections of Jesus. I pray you destroy in me all that is not you, and grant that I may live but in you and for you, and that I may truly say with St. Paul, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Let us begin today with God's dysfunctional family. We see in the book of Genesis that sin divided Adam's family between those who are the spiritual offspring of the woman and those who are the spiritual offspring of Satan. This awful reality becomes painfully apparent when Cain murders his brother Abel. So that brings up the question, how long did Cain hate his brother? And the answer is, as long as he was Abel. Cain's descendants became worse than Cain himself. By the sixth generation, Lamech was a boastful polygamist who bullied his two wives by bragging about his murders. Sadly, the Yun race had become so wicked in 10 generations that God determined to send a flood to destroy most of mankind. And so we read in the book of Genesis, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of his thoughts and of his heart was only evil continuously. Noah alone was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. So only Noah's little family, his wife and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives were the exception. God's tender care is expressed by the fact that after they entered the ark, God himself personally shut them safely inside. After the flood, God renews the covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with Noah and his family 
And he said, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. So the flood was a prefiguration of the sacrament of baptism. So we read in the New Testament, when God's patient waited in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a renewal of dirt, or removal, I should say, of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is St. Peter who wrote this. We're going to consider the connection again uh, between this passage and the sacrament of baptism when we get to the sacrament of baptism. Subsequently, sin again rears its ugly head. Noah's son Ham attempted to supplant his eldest brother Shem, committing an act of social relationship with the queen mother, Noah's wife. The child of this relationship was called Canaan. So let's consider this sin and Canaan. The offspring from this incestuous relationship serves as a background for the genealogy of Ham's descendants, from whom come some of the worst enemies of the Hebrew people, the Canaanites, Egypt, Nineveh, the Amorites, the Philistines. This served as another example of the evil results of sin, how it reverberates out. Ham's sin also shows how God's love and mercy is so often rejected. But because Shem remained faithful to the Lord, Noah blessed him with these words, Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem. Terah would descend from Shem and become the father of the patriarch Abraham and his two brothers Nahor and Nahan. One of the things we need to do is when God is punishing people, we need to understand how God's punishment works. In this life, God's punishment is always intended to be remedial. Eternal damnation is the one great catastrophe. Therefore, the raging waters of the flood gave those steeped in sin a final, a last opportunity to repent. Jesus himself would use the flood narrative as a foreshadowing of the unexpectedness of God's judgment and Jesus' second coming. And so Jesus said, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when, the, when Noah entered the ark, and they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. This then brings us to the wonderful story of the great patriarch Abraham, who was first called Abram, which meant exalted father. Later, God would change his name to Abraham, which means father of multitude. But that's a problem here. He had no children. So how can the exalted father and the future father of multitudes have no children? The important event of many in the life of Abram was meeting Melchizedek. Well, who was Melchizedek? It's interesting that the ancient Jews had a tradition that Melchizedek, the name means king of righteousness, was actually 
the righteous firstborn son of Noah, Shem, who was still alive. But sacred scripture teaches us that he was the priest king of Salem that Abram met when he returned from rescuing his nephew Lot, who had been captured by a military coalition of four kings. Returning home from the victory, the priest of the Most High, Melchizedek, blessed Abram and in return received from Abram a tithe of 10% of all the booty from the victory. The book of Hebrews views Melchizedek as a type of Christ. This is a major theme in the book of Hebrews, who is both Jesus then, was both priest and king. It references Psalm 110. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Like Jesus, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which was an early name for Jerusalem, the city that foreshadowed the heavenly Jerusalem. And finally, Melchizedek, like Christ, offered bread and wine, which Jesus will change into the heavenly food of his body and blood in the Eucharistic sacrifice. So Abram, this exalted father, remained childless, even though God promised numerous descendants that would come from his son. Abram was already 86 years old, and his wife Sarah remained barren. And therefore, Sarai made the suggestion that Abram should conceive a son by her maidservant, Hagar, because according to the custom of the time, the child would be considered Abram's legal son, legal heir. Abram agreed. A son was conceived, and Hagar delivered a boy whose name was Ishmael. He became the father of the Arab people. However, Ishmael was not destined by God to be the promised heir. And so, when Abram was 99 years old, God promised, You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. In order to emphasize that promise, God changed Abram's name from Abram to Abraham, father of multitude, and Sarai's name was changed to Sarah, the princess. God also declared, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. The sign of God's promise was circumcision by Abraham and all the males of his family. In other words, get out your foot knives and go to work. When Abraham was a hundred years old, Sarah delivered Isaac as God has promised. However, Isaac's birth caused division in Abraham's household, as is typical in cases of polygamy. As a result, Abram sent Hagar and Ishmael away. The climax of Abraham's life came in the form of a final test in Genesis chapter 22. And God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Notice how the difficulty gets worse. Your son, your only begotten son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the, on the mountain of which I will show you. Whoa, that is quite a challenge. 
Let's consider, for example, some of the parallels between this potential sacrifice of Isaac and Jesus Christ. Abraham offers his only begotten son. The Heavenly Father offers his only begotten son. Isaac carries the wood of sacrifice up Mount Moriah. Jesus carries the wood of his cross up Mount Sinai. They're on the same mountain range. Isaac says, my father. And Jesus prays, father, in the face of his sacrifice. Abraham declares, God will provide himself the lamb. John declares, Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isaac willingly offered himself in obedience to his father. Jesus willingly offers his life in obedience to the father and out of love for us. God provided a ram caught by the horns so that would substitute as a sacrifice for Isaac. The father provides his son who wears a crown of thorns for us. The offering of Isaac takes place on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. The offering of Jesus takes place on Mount Calvary, the same mountain range. What's so touching in the narrative of the sacrifice of Isaac is Abraham actually had the dagger in his hand and is ready to plunge it into his son when God intervened. But because of his obedience, God promised, because you have done this, you have not withheld your son, your only son. I will indeed bless you, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies, and by your offspring, of course referring to Jesus, shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. How wonderfully God responds to love. And because of this promise, because of this covenant, Matthew then will trace Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Abraham in the first chapter of his gospel. Abraham wanted a son, but because of his faithfulness, God gave him not just a son, but a destiny. The lesson here is that God always takes care of those who love him far beyond their expectations. John the Baptist declared that the true children of Abraham are those who bear fruit that befits repentance. It's a beautiful way to end the narrative of Abraham. And now we shift to the second great patriarch, Abraham's son Isaac. Isaac was the heir to the covenant God made with Abraham. God said, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant by his descendants after him. His wife, Rebekah, gave birth to twin boys, Esau and Jacob. But it was Jacob who became the heir to the covenant, to the promise. Esau proved himself unworthy when he sells his birthright for some red pottage. I mean, come on, it wasn't even gumbo. Subsequently, Jacob, with Rebekah's help, tricked Isaac into giving him the blessing and not to Esau. Esau was seriously upset and threatened to kill his brother. And therefore, Jacob had to flee to Haram to his uncle Laban, Rebekah's brother, where he got a PhD course in trickstering. On the way, Jacob encountered a stairway to heaven. 
we refer to it as Jacob's Ladder. Pat Preachy beautifully discusses this in his wonderful little book, Introduction to the Spiritual Life. And what Jacob saw as angels ascending and descending. And of course, that foreshadows Jesus, the true ladder, the true gateway, the true mediator between man and God. We also see it as a format of prayer as we send up the stairway in prayer uh, to the heavenly sanctuary. So at the bottom of the stairway, the first step of scriptural readings where we're inspired to give our hearts to Christ. Then this leads to meditation. The meditation of the scripture leads to prayer. And prayer finally leads to contemplation. We encounter God figuratively in the heavenly Jerusalem. Jacob is going to be the third of the great patriarchs. He had two wives, Leah and Rachel, and two concubines, Bilhah, who was Leah's servant, and Zilpah, who was Rachel's servant. And from these four women will come the 12 patriarchs of Israel. On the way back to his homeland, he's going to wrestle with an angel till dawn. And at the end of that, he's going to receive a blessing. And he's also going to receive a new name. He will now be called Israel, which means one who strives with God. He will have 12 sons, as we mentioned, the father of the 12 tribes, Reuben the oldest, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Gad, Asher, Joseph, we're going to see a lot about momentarily, and the baby, Benjamin. We also read in the book of Genesis about the sin of Onan, which was a sin of contraception. It's amazing that so few Christians are familiar with this passage. God actually struck Onan dead. He was the son of, of the patriarch Judah because he committed a contraceptive act in ostensibly fulfilling the customary obligation of raising a son for his deceased brother. He spilled the semen on the ground lest he should give offspring to his brother. Onan did this because, quote, he knew that the offspring would not be his, but his brother's. And God struck him dead. In order to rationalize contraception, some have claimed, well, God was really punishing Onan, not because of a sin of contraception, because he violated the Leverite law. <laughs> it's a real problem with this. At that time, there was no Leverite law. That's going to come into existence for hundreds of years. And secondly, the punishment for violating the Leverite law wasn't death. It was humiliation, not death. Well, Pius XI condemned the sin of contraception in the context of Onan's sin in his 1930 encyclical, Costae Canubii, worth reading today because it's really relevant. Joseph was the favorite son, and Joseph is a type of Jesus. He was the father's beloved son. He was rejected by his brethren and sold into slavery, and he relied on God to deliver him. He was unjustly accused in Egypt by Potiphar's wife, and he was put into prison. But God intervened, and he became the prime minister of all of Egypt. And in that role, he's going to protect Jacob and his brothers as he brings them into Egypt. The story of Joseph provides a wonderful example of how God protects and aids those who are faithful and virtuous. 
even those who endure injustices. He is also a model of forgiveness in regard to his brothers, nor does he seek vengeance on Potiphar and his wife once he becomes prime minister. So because Joseph brings a family into Egypt, the Jews now are going to thrive in Egypt for 400 years. So 400 years after Joseph's death, Jacob's family becomes so numerous that the ruling Pharaoh oppressed them, even to the point of attempting to kill the Hebrew baby boys. But God sent Moses to Pharaoh, saying, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve, the word here is habad, or work, which really refers to worship, that they may serve me in Egypt. In other words, it's all about worship. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay your firstborn son. So notice, slavery in Egypt, physical slavery, wasn't the primary issue. The primary issue is getting the pagan Egyptian culture out of the Hebrew people, idolatry and paganism. That was far worse than physical slavery. God's plan was for the people to leave Egypt to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then, because of their holiness and God's blessing, they would draw God's other children, the Gentiles, to Yahweh because they would see their holy lives and want to emulate them. And this is evident because this then also becomes the destiny of Christians to draw everyone to Christ by the holiness of our lives. In the battle of Pharaoh and his magicians and the demons of Egypt takes place in ten plagues. And each of the plagues are debunking one of the false gods of Egypt. Deliverance from the angel of death, which is going to be the last and the final plague, when the angel of death would strike down all the firstborn in Egypt. The Jews were required to, to slay a one-year-old lamb without blemish, to take the blood of that lamb and to smear it on the doorpost and the lintel, the lintels that bar above the doorpost, to eat the roasted lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, to gird their loins and sandals on their feet, put a staff in their hand because they need to be ready to depart in haste. And this became a perpetual memorial, a remembrance of God's mercy to his people. Now, this expression or this term remembrance is a very important idea biblically. In the sense of sacred scripture, this memorial or remembrance is not just remembering something that took place in the past, a recollection of a past event, but a proclamation of the mighty works of God brought to men. In other words, the, the, the grace of that past event is brought forward now into time. So in the liturgical celebration of these events, they become present and real. And this is how Israel understood its liberation from Egypt every time they celebrated the Passover liturgy. The Exodus events were made present to the believers so they could conform their lives to God. And so the Jewish people are sent out of Egypt. There's a miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. And now we come to Sinai and the Sinai Covenant. And God says, Now therefore, 
If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession. Listen how, how tender this is. Among all the peoples of the earth, you shall be mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Wow. And so Mount Sinai, God gives the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. So specifically, the Ten Commandments are the behaviors Israel was supposed to follow in order to become a holy people, both in their relation with God and as a model to the nations, to the Gentiles. The obligation to keep the Ten Commandments is also vital for Christians. When Jesus was asked the question, Teacher, what good deed must I do to enter eternal life? Jesus responded, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus' words are decisive. And so now we come to this covenant. So God then, at Sinai, makes a covenant with Israel. And he says, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. And the people respond. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Of course, what's the result? Is that constantly disobedient. So what we see in the desert is Moses is creating a hierarchical structure that's very similar to the hierarchical structure Jesus forms in the New Testament. So Moses appoints Aaron as a high priest, and then you have Moses as the head, then Aaron the high priest, and then with him Nadab and Abihu, the three leaders, and then 12 young men representing each of the 12 tribes, like 12 priests. What does Jesus do? Well, Jesus is the head. He appoints Peter as his high priest, as Aaron was the high priest in the Old Covenant, and then the three leaders, Peter, James, and John. And then you have 12 apostles representing uh, the church and the new Israel. Well, all of this is very lovely and very beautiful, but the reality is spoiled by what we call the apostasy of the golden calf. Actually, calling it a calf is a mockery because they were really worshiping the bull god Apis, let's see, who represented sex, wealth, and power, the three biggies that pull man away from God. So when Moses came down from the mountain, he observed the chaotic scene of idolatry that it broke out among the people. So he takes the tablets of law and throws them down and breaks them because they had already broken the Ten Commandments by sin. And then Moses commanded, Who is on the Lord's side? And the Levites come to Moses, and Moses commanded, Then put every man his sword by his side and go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp, and every man slay his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Whoa! When the punishment was completed, 3,000 men were killed. What does Moses say to Levites? You know, listen, you guys kind of got carried away. No, that's not what he said. He said, today you have ordained yourselves. And because of this apostasy of the golden calf, the majority of the ceremonial and sacrificial laws cited 
in the later chapters of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers were added because when you have more sin, you have more law. You have more evil, you have more laws, just like we have today, even civilly. Then, almost 40 years later, the rebellious idolatry and the promiscuity at Beth Peor repeats another betrayal of God. And this brings about Deuteronomy, the second law. This was the time that Moses permitted divorce because of Israel's hard heart. Jesus, however, will abolish this Mosaic law in Matthew chapter 19 when he talks about the indissolubility of marriage. So now, because of the prophecy of the golden calf, we have the Levitical priesthood. So let's take a look at the structure. You have the high priest, then you have the priest, and then you have the Levites. So the Levites, who are not priests, who are then functioning like deacons function in the Christian era. This hierarchical priestly structure ended when Jesus restored the priesthood of the firstborn son after he established the church, which is the assembly of the firstborn, according to the book of Hebrews. And so in so doing, Jesus reunited the office of priesthood and kingship by restoring the royal priesthood in himself. And thus Peter wrote of the members of Christ's church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. Notice the destiny that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him, Jesus, who called you out of darkness, that is out of sin, into his marvelous light. That's the destiny of Christians. Well, how do we accomplish this vocation? Very simple, not complicated, but hard. It's called holiness. One of the things that surprised many Christians is that confessing to a priest goes back to the Old Testament. For example, the Old Testament says, when is guilty of any of these sins that are identified, he shall confess the sin he has committed. Well, who does he confess to? His next-door neighbor? His friend? The local rabbi? No, no, no. He shall bring the guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb, or goat for the sin offering. And the priest, notice who he's confessing to, shall make atonement for him for his sin. Later, when we discuss the sacred confession, we're going to make a comparison with the Old Testament confession and the sacred confession in the New Testament. They're radically different. But I tell, tell you now, after going through all of that, there was one thing the Levitical priest never said to the, to the a person who confesses sins. I absolve you from your sins. God commanded the tabernacle be established. The tabernacle was a portable temple as a place for worship and sacrifice. In the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, sacrifice, worship, always set it on the altar. This tent sanctuary, the tabernacle, this portable temple, was constructed very exactly according to the pattern God gave to Moses. It was a rectangular structure with two rooms. The most inner room, called the Holy of Holies, 
was designed to be a cube of about 15 feet. The Ark of the Covenant was placed in this room. According to God's command, it was made from, that is the Ark of the Covenant, was made from acacia wood, covered both sides with pure gold plating. Inside was a golden vessel containing some of the manna that fed the people 40 years in the desert, Aaron's rod that blossomed, vindicating his high priesthood, and the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's intimate relationship with his people. The Ark remained in the temple for about 400 years until hidden by Jeremiah on Mount Nebo, as I mentioned earlier. Read about this in 2 Maccabees. Jeremiah hid the Ark before the temple was looted and destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, the greater part of the tabernacle, the large rectangular room uh, with its entrance was approximately 15 feet by 30 feet. It was called the holy place. A large veil or curtain separated the two rooms, the holy of holies from the holy place. The altar of incense was in the holy place, the bread of the presence, and the golden seven-branched lampstand that served as a reminder of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Two items stood outside of the tabernacle before its entrance. One was a great bronze altar where all the sacrifices were made. Sacrifice was always the center of Old Testament worship. The other was the large bronze laver that was used for washings and purification rites. All worship in the Old Testament, centered on the altar and sacrifice, not on preaching, not on Bible reading, not on singing. The altar was the center, as is true worship in the church established by Jesus. This focus on the preacher is an unbiblical divination that began in the 16th century. So as the people are going to enter the Holy Land, we now go into the period of conquest by Joshua in the period of Judges. Moses proclaimed the future Messiah. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brethren. Him you shall heed. And then another place in Deuteronomy, Moses said, And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. St. Peter will cite these passages as fulfilled in the resurrected Jesus during his proclamation in the temple after the healing of the lame beggar. Joshua, the name means the Lord is salvation or Yahweh saves. Yeshua in Hebrew, Jesus in Greek. We get the name Jesus from that. Joshua was named by Moses. And after Moses died, Joshua was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands upon him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Joshua was the one, along with Caleb, who was sent by Moses to scout the land of Canaan. They were the only two of the 12 spies who spoke confidently of victory. 
It's sad. But all the others were so upset that they almost threatened to murder Moses. So Joshua then serves as a prefiguration of Jesus. Joshua's name in Greek, as I mentioned, is Jesus, Jesus in English. He served as a foreshadowing of the life of the Lord Jesus, who would save God's people from the bondage of sin by passing through the waters of the Red Sea, symbolizing baptism, and filling them with the gift of the Holy Spirit, which, of course, was Jesus' mission. So the conquest of the Promised Land, which was begun by Joshua, began 40 years after the Exodus and 480 years before Solomon began the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. The walled city of Jericho was conquered first. It was a victory achieved by divine intervention through a combination of liturgy, that is worship, and force. Archaeology dates human habitation in the city of Jericho that goes back to around the year 9,000 B.C. Scholars date the beginning of the conquest around the year 1400 B.C. The fall of Jericho was followed by the capture of Ai and the central highlands, the defeat of the Amorite kings and the cities in Galilee then followed. Joshua's last achievement was a national renewal of the covenant at Sikkim. Here he was following the lead of Moses, who acted as a covenant mediator at Mount Sinai. During this time, the chief danger to the Hebrew people during this period was the influence of the Canaanites. So in spite of the conquest of the Canaanite strongholds, the pagan culture of the Canaanites would remain for centuries. This evil influence of Canaanite idolatry would plague the Hebrew people and contribute to the eventual collapse of the monarchy. This event serves as an enduring example of the evil power of bad example and sin. After Joshua, we come to a period that is called the period of the judges. So it goes from the time of Joshua's death until the advent of the prophet Samuel. And of course, then we're going to go into the kingdom. It covers a period of about 300 years up to about the year 1050 B.C. The book of Judges narrates the cycle of idolatry and punishment through foreign powers that oppress God's people, followed by repentance, God's merciful deliverance, and then this evil cycle starts all over again. On the whole, this was one of the darkest periods in the history of Israel. So what can we say about this period of God expanding his covenant, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. There are two narratives in particular in the book of Genesis that are particularly moving. The first is the amazing story of God's command to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham's son, his only beloved son whom he loved so dearly. Together with Isaac, incredible willingness to surrender his life as he carried the wood of the sacrifice up the mountainside, and he was willing to allow himself to be bound and sacrificed. Isaac was spared, but the Heavenly Father's only begotten Son, Jesus, would not be spared as he surrendered his life for us on that same mountain range. Secondly, there's the amazing narrative 
of Joseph that also foreshadows Jesus' redemptive suffering, which brought about our salvation. Betrayed by his brothers into slavery and lost to his father, Joseph would rise to become the savior of his family as they came into Egypt under his protection. The Joseph narrative is one of the most amazing stories in all of literature. It's worth reading just for its literary power. It's also a powerful example of God's protection to those who are faithful to him. Remembering this, let us begin with the prayer Jesus taught us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this Magnificat podcast. Have you been touched by our time together? If so, for more information or to find a Magnificat chapter near you, go to our website at magnificat-ministry.org or visit us on social media. We would love to hear from you. You can also email us at magnificatcst at aol.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.